If there is one thing we in the church know, it is that the church always faces different issues and challenges. Few of the earliest congregations in church history knew this better than the church of Corinth as detailed in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Today, we will see that the issues in the Corinthian church went on and on and on. Paul wastes no time going right into the challenges that they have, whether it be marriage, singleness, divorce, and food sacrifice to idols. All of this and more on today's episode of Groundwork. Stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Daryl Delaney. And Scott, we have been in the middle of a seven-part series in the book of 1 Corinthians. And in the last episode, we talked about chapters 5 and 6 of 1 Corinthians, where Paul didn't pull any punches when he talked about sexual immorality and bringing lawsuits to one another in the church. And we also talked about how they need to settle these things outside of court if they realize that they're spirit-filled people, they can have different ways to handle things as opposed to the people in the world. And Paul's bottom line, as we saw, Daryl, uh, in that last program, was that um, they have to remember who they are now. This isn't just some hobby. No, no, it transforms the core of who we are. It's going to transform how we do our job. It's going to transform how we speak. And so Paul says, you know, you can't do these sexual immoral things. You can't keep visiting prostitutes. You can't keep filing lawsuits against each other over trivial matters. You belong to Jesus now. Act like it. So that's what we saw before. We've been saying all along in this series, Daryl, that this letter of 1 Corinthians is a reply to a long list of questions and controversies that the uh, Corinthians had sent to Paul. And so we're going to see um, a couple more things that they ask questions about in this episode. He has advice for marriage. He has advice for widows, um, things that he has not experienced. But I believe the Holy Spirit has equipped him for these things. And so we can readily receive his encouragement in these regards and in these messages in the letter that he wrote. So let's look at First Corinthians. And it's quite lengthy in this verse passage that he talks about. But we're going to read it in its entirety in verses 1 through 16. Now for the matters which you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, to the unmarried or to the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled. A husband must not divorce his wife. And to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, 
If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances." How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So there's a lot of stuff going on here, Daryl, and some of it has to do with some time-specific, I think, first-century things. It, it does look like Paul, indeed, is single. We don't know why. We don't know if his wife died or if he just never got married. We know probably most of the disciples were married. We know Peter for sure was. There's yeah. a healing of his mother-in-law at one point, right? So it's not like all the apostles were unmarried, but Paul— is one way or the other. And he kind of speaks out of that context, but he try, speaks, as you said, he speaks into a variety of contexts. Yeah, it's a lot to unpack here, Scott. I mean, this one this one passage could be its own series <laughs> if we think about it. But uh, what's important, I think, to kind of crystallize what we're reading here and what we're talking about is that God has a vision for how we are to honor him, whether we're single or we're married. And in, in this current time that we live now, it seems that marriage has become central and for some reason, we've emphasized it to have more value, socially speaking, as opposed to single people. But it was actually the other way around in the Corinthian context, where being single, having 100 percent devotion to God was seen as the top and the most holy way to live. So then people try to take that single mentality into marriage. And so they wouldn't even communicate with each other to not have sex or not make love with each other. But they would say, no, I'm devoting myself to God, which is really not fair to your spouse if you don't communicate. And so this is the one. One thing that we need to know about that is that the fact that God honors marriage to be in its right context, sex to happen in the context of marriage. That was his design. So it's kind of interesting, isn't it, right? The problem with some of the Corinthians were saying sex is no big deal. Just, you know, you can do whatever you want. You know, the one guy's taken up with his mother-in-law. Others are going to the prostitutes. Now Paul's turning to a different question in that same letter from people who are saying sex is bad, right? I shouldn't even have it with my husband or wife, right? And Paul's saying, no, sex is a gift of God. It's a good thing. It's just got to be in marriage. And, you know, better to be who God made you to be within the context of marriage than to just kind of burn or let it lead you astray or whatever. So we're dealing with two different polarities in this same tiny congregation, some who were being way too casual about sex and some who were being way too uptight about it. And Paul said, in marriage, it's a beautiful thing. It's a gift. So exercise it there. But if you don't need to get married, you shouldn't. But, you know, some scholars, Daryl, have suggested that Paul may have you kind of kind of read between the lines and some of his other letters. Paul may have anticipated that Jesus was going to come again real, real soon. And so there are some scholars who say he urged people not to get married because he didn't think the church would last more than a generation sure. anyway. Obviously, the church would eventually die out if uh, believers don't have children that they raise in the Lord, and then they raise their children in the Lord. That's the covenant, right? That's the idea right. of God's growing family. Uh, we reach out beyond our families, but you know, you sort of start with families too. So there, there are some different cultural and maybe even some theological cross currents here so that you don't want to take anything Paul says here and make it a once-for-all rule for everybody for all times. I think the fact that Paul has uh, different things to say in these situations, and he's trying to show you the nuance in it because he'll say, it's I, not the Lord, or it's the Lord, not I, yeah, so that you would know who's speaking because there is nothing actually that 
is specifically addressing the issue at the moment, then he'll say, this is kind of my educated guess, if you will, or yeah. spirit-filled guess to address these situations. It's one of those little parts of Bible interpretation that can make life kind of interesting. But the point being that Paul is saying there are lots of different ways to glorify God. A single person or a widowed person who chooses not to remarry can glorify God. A husband and wife, you know, with a full relationship with each other can glorify God. The goal is to glorify God and to use God's gift in the places where God wants them to be used. And that, that I think, probably is um, the bottom line. But in just a minute, we'll dig a little deeper into 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul's going to talk about something completely different. So stay tuned. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Daryl Delaney. And I'm Scott Jose. And now, Daryl, in this part of the program, we're going to change gears for just a bit. Paul will have more things to say about sexuality, but now he turns to something that seems foreign to us. When we read it, we're really tempted to say, well, this doesn't apply to us. And that is the topic of food sacrificed to idols. Obviously, the Christian religion at the time Paul was writing to the Corinthians was new. It was the newest spiritual game in town. But there were a lot of religions that had been around for a long time in the Greco-Roman culture, some of which sacrificed food to idols, and then they would either burn that food up or there were some cultures where they would eat it then. They, they would sack, they would, you know, cook it in the honor of, of the god, whoever it was, and then it was a potluck, and then they would eat that food. And so the Corinthians obviously said, should we do that? Is, would that be wrong? Would that make Jesus unhappy if we attended a party that our friends were holding? They sacrificed the beef roast to Diana or whatever, and then they asked us to eat it. And is that wrong? So this is an actual situation that's interesting because I think that we need to understand that idolatry has not left. Mm-hmm. Right. Idolatry, in, in essence of a definition, if I could give one, would be that if we give our time, attention, and resources to something or someone other than God. And so in the 21st century, we might not have an idol store on every corner, but we might have them digitally now. If we look down at our phones, there's an app for that, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, and so it's interesting that God's Ten Commandments are still important. The fact that he's still jealous and he wants our undivided attention is still relevant today. And when you look at the Corinthian church that are trying to figure out as believers, is this OK for me to do or not? The question is, OK, if idols are not real. Do I still have the ability to make a decision? And where's the freedom in that? Do I have freedom to choose or not? I have a funny story before we get to that, though. A friend of mine was a pastor at a church in Toronto, Canada. And Toronto is a very eclectic uh, religious city, one of the most eclectic religious cities in the world. Anyway, my friend preached on this passage from 1 Corinthians 7 on food sacrifice idols. And he spent the whole sermon basically saying, well, of course, there's no such thing as this anymore. So what's this like for us today? So he makes all these analogies, right? And then after the service, a young woman shakes his hand at the church door and says, by the way, uh, I'm dating a Buddhist. And on Friday nights, we go to the temple and they sacrifice food to Buddha and then we eat it. Is that okay? 
And my friend's like, man, I spent the whole sermon explaining this away, and it's just as real for this woman as it was for the Corinthians. So you never know. Uh, that mostly doesn't come up. But you're right, there. What you really want to take away from this is that idols are nothing. Idols are false. So they sacrifice food to an idol. They've sacrificed the food to nothing. Sure. So, of course, you can eat it. Don't worry about it. It's, it's nothing, right? Unless, Paul says, something else happens. So to eat or not to eat is the question, right? So if there's another believer who is new to the faith that has basically came from that idol worship and they're seeing you eat this food that is sacrificed to idols, they could be confused or discouraged by that. Paul calls it a stumbling block. You don't want to be a stumbling block to the other believer. So the question is not whether you can eat it and they'll get over it. Scott, the question is, am I going to love my brother or sister enough to not eat it so that I don't become confusing to them or overwhelming to them at all? In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul continues this line of thought. Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that, quote, we all possess knowledge, end quote. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So in other words, that's just what you're saying, Daryl. You know, okay, you've got this knowledge. Hey, idols are nothing. Food sacrificed to idols is nothing. I can eat it. Uh, that's knowledge, Paul says. And you can get kind of cocky with that, puffed up. You know, you can get full of yourself. But love builds up. And love makes you say, I do know this is nothing. I do know this is not a real idol. This isn't a real God. This food is not spiritually contaminated. But if it messes up my sister when she sees me eating it, then love says, don't eat it Yes, for her sake, right? Don't trip her up just because you think, well, I know everything. No, that's not how we operate, Paul says. Sometimes people think, especially in the Greco-Roman world, knowledge made you sophisticated. Knowledge made you significant. It gave you your value. But your value should not come from the information that you know. Your value, Scott, should come from the fact that God knows you, number one. And number two, you have the choice to make this if you're going to sacrifice your convenience and your freedom to love a brother or a sister. And that is the challenge, the sacrifice that needs to happen so that they don't become a stumbling block to one another. And he says exactly that. You go a little bit deeper to verse uh, uh, nine. Be careful, Paul says, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in the idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Put your own self aside, Paul says, so you don't mess up. Uh, somebody else for whom Christ died. I like how he throws it in there. Oh, right? yeah. Zinger. Uh, yep. This is your brother and sister. Be kind to them. Don't mess them up. So because, Scott, we have a relationship with and fellowship with our brother and sister in Christ, we have to actually model the kind of godly example that they should model. And so Paul has been going through these different things of how not to behave because of the fact that God has brought us into a union relationship with him. And so in this situation, when he's talking about this food that sacrificed to idols, it's clear that, that idols aren't real. Okay, we get that. But are you going to make the choice to sacrifice it for love 
instead of keeping your knowledge and indulging yourself and hurting your fellow believer. That's something we don't accept, and I don't think that's okay. Exactly. So I just told the story about a person who actually did have to deal with food sacrifice idols, but what are some of the equivalents of this? Well, you know, it depends on your context. It depends where you are, but let's say you know as a believer that it's okay to drink wine or to have a, a cocktail. But if you've got brothers or sisters who are new to the faith or who thinks it's wrong, um, then don't don't drink in their presence, right? Don't 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 do something right. they think is spiritually problematic. Just don't drink wine tonight for their sake, right? Or or it could be something else or something you do on a Sunday. You know, you've got a neighbor who thinks, oh man, you you can't do that on a Sunday. It's the Lord's day. Well, you maybe know that it's not wrong to. Do whatever it is you want to do, play a ball game or something. But if, if your neighbor is going to get upset about it, then don't do it when they're around, right? Your knowledge shouldn't be more important than your love. And I think that's Paul's main point. I agree with you, Scott. And coming up next, we're going to talk about how God shows the very example that Paul has been trying to get the Corinthian believers to understand. So stay tuned for that. Have you ever felt truly awestruck? Perhaps a booming thunderstorm, or roaring waves, or a starry night sky filled you with awe. Maybe you held a newborn baby and felt the overwhelming awe of God's miracle of new life. The book of Acts describes how the Holy Spirit of God breathed the Christian church into life. Many moments in Acts note a deep sense of awe as people witnessed the Spirit of God in action. Join today in August as we reflect on these moments in a series of devotions titled A Deep Sense of Awe. Refresh, refocus, and renew at todaydevotional.com. I'm Scott Jose, along with Daryl Delaney, and you're listening to Groundwork and this fourth episode on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. The first letter we have, uh, we've been mentioning, Daryl, that there were probably three, four, or five actual letters. And uh, this letter uh, actually refers to a previous letter Paul wrote that we don't have. And this letter is a reply to a letter Paul received from the Corinthians with a long list of questions. And uh, Paul is is replying to each issue in turn. Uh, So we've already seen discussions on the wisdom of the cross, conversations about sexuality, marriage, singleness, um, divorce, uh, lawsuits among believers, uh, food sacrifice to idols we just looked at. So this is what Paul's been teaching. But the bottom line, Daryl, in all of it is understanding who they are. Identity. And the supreme role of love. And I believe that this segment here that we want to get into now talks about the fact that God is the one who actually puts that into practice as a model. And I believe that Paul is borrowing from it even though it doesn't explicitly say this, where he's showing that this is the example that I want to see among you Corinthian believers, that this is the example coming from God. In the previous segment, Darrell, we, we looked at a passage in First Corinthians 8 where Paul refers to sisters or brothers who are weaker and to be considerate of them and, and don't do what you know is okay to do if they think it isn't okay to do. You know, right? Don't be rude. Don't, don't upset them unnecessarily. Uh, don't become a stumbling block to them. And, and Paul talks about the strong and the weak in several different places in his letters. Of course, we have to be careful with this in the, in the church also today, Daryl, because the thing is, is that none of us ever want to be labeled as the weak one. 
<laughs> right? right? Right. And none of us should automatically label ourselves as the strong one, therefore, because that's knowledge puffing up all over again, right? right? It's the same problem in reverse. So nobody ever wants to be, you know, considered weak. I, I think there's a sense in which Paul might say, you know, compared to Jesus and compared to what you were before Jesus rescued you by grace alone, you were all weak, right? You were all vulnerable. You were all in, in complete need of God's love. While we were yet sinners, God loved us. Um, right. Let's let that love translate into your everyday life in the church and in the world. Scott, I think that, too, it also could be helpful for us to think about the, quote unquote, weaker believer as those in a different stage of faith. Mm. So as disciples, everybody is not going to go from zero to maturity, from milk to meat overnight. And so the fact that there are new believers that are coming in that are just learning about what idols are and what they are not. I think it's important to know that they may be a little weaker in their faith for someone who has been walking with Jesus for a few more years than them to understand the doctrine and the teaching about idols and how they're not real and the freedom that Christ gives us. So it's not a, a fair for the older believer to tell the newer believer, oh, you just got to get over it. But yeah, I have to be the one who will sacrifice and love and show the love for my brother and sister in Christ. We did a series on groundwork on uh, growth in discipleship. And at any given time, in any given church, you're going to have believers at all kinds of different stages in their discipleship. And even beyond stages of discipleship, you're going to have people with lots of different opinions on lots of different issues. We're always, as pastors, as elders and deacons, as ordinary folks in the church, we're always sort of navigating you know, the, the path of love, to bring more people instead of fewer people along, to keep the church unified. And very often that requires sacrifice, right? Which, given that we follow a crucified Savior, uh, ought not be too surprising, right? right. Uh, it means sometimes we just keep our mouths shut. It means sometimes we just put in our back pocket something we might otherwise do if uh, certain other people weren't around. But for now, we're not going to do it. We're not going to, you know, engage in that. That's just what it means to love. I think you mentioned earlier in the program, Daryl, that particularly in the United States, freedom is a big deal. I got oh, rights. Yes. I got rights. And, you know, during the global pandemic with COVID, some of that talk about rights tore churches apart because a lot of people said, I got rights. I don't oh, have to yes. wear a mask. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to follow what the government says. Uh, I got rights. And we heard that a lot from Christian believers. Can you imagine what Paul would say to that? <laughs> I would imagine that he would say what he said in Philippians 3 where he counts them all rubbish mm. because comparing to knowing Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, there's nothing more important than that. There are no claims to fame. There are no values or laurels that we can rest upon. And God knows that about us in our walk with him. He knows that we have weak consciences, just like the connection Paul is making with the Corinthian believers that are new. And he knows that God has to do a sacrifice in order to have a relationship with us because there's no way we could attain to it. He demonstrates the very love that Paul is telling us to demonstrate to one another so that we can have access to him. And he puts our need over his convenience. That's the point of what Paul is trying to get to the Corinthians. Even if it's true that you've got rights, Paul would say, put them in your back pocket for now for the sake of unity and, and love. I mean, 
Can you imagine when Paul got that letter from the first Corinthians listing things like, well, we've got a member who's sleeping with his mother-in-law and uh, oh, a lot of our members are suing each other in federal court. I mean, Paul must have about torn his hair out. You know, he must have wanted to say what? I mean, he could have just said, forget these Corinthians. I am so over these people. They are, they're more trouble than they're worth. Oh, I'm an apostle. I don't have to mess with these. But no. In love, he composes this long 16-chapter letter, and it's just saturated with love. It's saturated with Paul doing to these troublesome, nettlesome, quarreling, immature Corinthians. Paul's doing for them exactly what he says we all need to do for one another, which if you think about that larger picture, it's kind of kind of ironic. He does that not just once, Scott. <laughs> he sent them quite a few letters to mm. get them to understand the point because earlier in the other segment, we said that this is the letter I addressed to you. I already said this. Mm. So this is not only review, but it's <laughs> continued love in repetitive form so they could catch on that. They need the compassion in order to change. Just because Paul has the knowledge doesn't mean that it's enough. It means that he has to make sure they know. He loves them, and God loves us, and we need to love each other, and that's the path that the Spirit charts for us. Well, thank you for listening and digging deeply into Scripture with Groundwork. We hope you'll join us again next time as we dig deeper into the letter of 1 Corinthians and look at the issues Paul addresses in chapter 10. Be sure not to miss the next episode of Groundwork. Connect with us on our website, groundworkonline.com. Share what Groundwork means to you or make some suggestions for future Groundwork programs. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Ministries. Visit reframeministries.org for more information and to find more resources to encourage your faith. We're your host, Daryl Delaney with Scott Jose. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our senior producer is Courtney Jacobs. 